Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. You're on the trail less traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration. And we're recording this evening in Wanaka, New Zealand. We're about 150 meters from Lake Wanaka, surrounded by mountains. It's evening. It's been howling wind all day, and I've been listening to it in the fireplace as I edit audio. And it's been just a lovely evening. And I'm here with two of my friends, Richard and Di. And I was able to go down the Colorado River with these guys last summer and reconnect with them here in New Zealand. So I'm very grateful to be here in your home in New Zealand. And this evening, I'm going to be speaking to Richard and Di about the passion for growing things. Richard and I are both cultivators of grapes, olives, mussels, veggies, sheep, and honey, to name a few. We're going to talk to them about their wine, which we're sipping right now. It's uh, Pinot Noir, and their label is Two Degrees, and this is a 2015 Pinot Noir. So we're going to be speaking to them about winemaking as well as farming sheep. But first, I have a question for each of you, and that is, where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Dunedin, which is about three hours' drive from Wanaka. And my father was an explorer. He would never go in a direct route from Dunedin to Wanaka. He would look at a signpost going right or left and say, well, just take a deviation up here and check this out. He drove my mother nuts doing this, but he constantly went down a blind road to figure out what was at the other end of it. So quite liked not necessarily getting to a place on a direct line, but exploring on the way. Yeah, Dunedin. Yeah, my father was a printer, and being in Dunedin, Dunedin was the original commercial capital of New Zealand, and they grew up in a town which was funded by the gold rush. There was a big gold rush in central Otago, in the 1860s and 1870s. So Dunedin became the commercial capital. And my ancestors came from Scotland on my father's side. They were Presbyterians, a liberal form of Presbyterianism. And they didn't get pushed out, but they decided they would find a more accommodating place to live. So they hopped on a boat in 1848 and came down to Dunedin. So there's a bit of pioneering spirit and the gene pool there no doubt and that was the beginning my family business was printing Dunedin after the gold rush was a very wealthy town but it progressively diminished and people migrated to the north to Auckland so Auckland is now the population centre of New Zealand one and a half million population in Greater Auckland out of a total population of four and a half million and so Dunedin became less of a centre 
So my family then moved to the North Island to establish the business in the North Island because that's where the business was. So my father led the business. So as a youngster, we migrated to a place called Palmerston North, which is in the North Island. And it's commonly referred to as a great place to come from. It's on the plain. It's very windy. But it was a hub for a lot of activity that took place in the North Island. So hence we moved from Dunedin to Palmerston North. But I'm back here now, and Di will tell her story in a minute, but I'm back in Wanaka because we used to come back as kids from the North Island. It was a big journey. We'd drive two hours, hop on an old Bristol freighter plane with the car, and then drive for another day and a half to get to Wanaka on dusty roads. And my father just loved it down here. So in a way, this is the, what do the Maori call it, where your feet rest your Foka Riwa Riwa. Yeah, so it feels like coming home from here. But on the way, we've lived in Wellington, we lived in London, we had 12 years in Sydney, and we came back to Wanaka in the early 2000s, 2001-2002. You're on the trail less travelled the community source for adventure information and inspiration. Tonight the trail leads to Wanaka on New Zealand's South Island. Di, same question for you. Where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Thank you, Mandela. I was born in Invercargill, which is right at the southern tip of the South Island and a very Arctic sort of place to come from, Antarctic, because the winds come up from the south. So it's renowned for being cold, windy, and rather inhospitable. I had a fabulous childhood in Invercargill because of all those factors. We used to go to the beach and swim with goosebumps coming off our skin. And we used to come up to central Otago where Wanaka is situated and ski and have big fires going in this little tiny square batch that my father built when I was four years old. So my sense of adventure and wanting to know about the world was instilled in me, I think, by my mum and my dad. My dad came back from World War II and helped to go into a shoe shop in Invercargill, so he became a retailer of shoes post-war. He had left school when he was 13 during the recession years, so it was pretty tough in those days. And he and mum just got on with their lives post-war, and we had a very, very happy childhood exploring the slightly northern reaches of the island, i.e. Central Otago, Queenstown, Arrowtown and Wanaka. And then when I was a teenager, I went off to America for a year and lived just south of Chicago in a very conservative little town called Shanoa on Route 66. And that taught me a lot about what I didn't want to be and what I didn't want to experience for the rest of my life. There was a lot of conservatism. This is 1967, 68. It was a tough environment in the middle of the Midwest in those years. 
and there was a lot of racism there was a lot of very anyway I shouldn't be going on about America I'm talking about New Zealand but those sorts of things influenced my life in New Zealand so when I came back I then went to university in Otago Dunedin where I met Draft alias Richard and we ended up being together for the rest of our lives so far and we've had a lot of adventures since then and because of our childhoods sort of centering on central Otago we were determined to come back here for our later years so we were very fortunate in securing some land beside the lake and we now have this beautiful home with beautiful views and we have the farm down the road where the vineyard is as well and we have a very charmed life at the moment we're very fortunate Tonight the trail leads to Lake Wanaka, and you're on the trail less traveled, recorded in New Zealand. And indeed, we're sitting here about 150 meters from Lake Wanaka, surrounded by mountains. And I'm speaking with Richard and Di. And like Di mentioned, they've traveled quite a lot. At the table this evening, we've spoken about the Forbidden City, uh, Mustang, Nepal. They've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and then the last time I saw you was... When you were on the Grand Canyon with me, we were running some of the world's biggest whitewater and you were hiking out. So grateful to see you again now here in New Zealand. I'd like to now talk to you about where we are. I'd love it if you could paint the picture for those listening over in the United States or around the world. What is Wanaka all about geologically and the glaciers? Just now, about an hour and a half ago, I returned from Rob Roy Glacier. And that's just one of the many glaciers in this part of the world. This area was originally one huge glacier that came down from the Southern Alps. And where we are now was covered in hundreds of feet of ice that went right down to the Cromwell Basin, which is some 60 kilometers south of here. As the ice receded, we're left with these high up glaciers and snowfields not far from us quite spiky mountains, quite young mountains. They're still forming. We have a lot of earthquakes here still, and the land is changing. Many of you may have heard of the Christchurch earthquake of seven years ago, and then the most recent one of Kaikoura, just up north of Christchurch on the east coast, which has somewhat changed the coastal landscape of New Zealand. So we're in a changing and evolving environment, which can be very challenging. So the ice receded, and we're now left with this beautiful landscape with a massive lake on our doorstep, totally natural. It is uncontrolled. It has two inlets in the form of two large rivers and one outlet in the form of the biggest river in New Zealand called the Clutha River. So no dams, nothing, totally natural which is one of its charms. And the landscape around is rugged. It's dry, very dry in summer. We don't get much rain at all. And so we have these big bulbous terminal moraines called moutons, which are brown and arid and covered in tussock. So we get the most amazing light effects on the tussock and the lake and the mountains and the sky and the clouds. It's quite incredible. It's a very amazing place to live. 
So geologically young and formed by glaciers, which has in turn left its mark and enabled us to have a very successful vineyard underneath the glacial remains, which have become river terraces and formed by wind-blown loess soils. What have you got to add to that, Ricardo? Yeah, it's a very raw environment, as Di says, geologically young and moving. It's very evident that it's a glaciated region. There's, Di says, big moutons, large lumps of terminal moraine in the valley, and then the river systems have carved their way through that. And it's fertile, but it's arid. We get 40 inches, 100 centimetres of rain a year here, and most of that arrives in large lumps. So traditionally, coming out of a winter, it's quite green, and then it goes very brown. So a lovely contrast in the colours here between the blue of the lake and the brown countryside that surrounds. And at this time of the year, we've got some snow starting to arrive. So we've got another piece of the colour palette that's being infilled. And between now and July, when the ski season starts, that snow will start to hold and start to come down towards the lake. So it's a, I'm trying to think of an equivalent in the US. It's probably like a Tahoe in many ways, a nice big lake with you know, snow-covered mountains around it. It's a beautiful part of the world. It lends itself to all sorts of activities too. It's an outdoor activity centre in Wanaka. So there's a lot of athletes that live and train here because it's at altitude. It's 300 metres above sea level. There's a lot of triathletes here. They run the big tri-series triathlons here in March every year. The Ironman, yeah. Yeah, the full Ironman. A lot of people being very active. There's big mountaineering culture here. There's a mountaineering school here. Guy Cotter, who runs one of those schools, has just made his 12th successful ascent of Everest. And then underneath that, there's a whole culture of people that do amazing things in the in the mountains, ice climbing, climbing, aspiring here, which is the third tallest mountain outside of Mount Cook and Mount Tasman, the two highest mountains. So a big school of mountaineers. Mountain biking is the other thing that we do. From where we live here, I can go left around the lake and ride 40-odd, 50-odd kilometres in one direction on a single track and back again. I can go right down the river, down the outlet to the river, and that track system down the river eventually will go all the way to the coast. It's a mountaineers, and a mountain biker's paradise here. In the summer, the top layer of the lake warms up quite well. We get 30 to 35 degrees centigrade days. The top layer of the lake can get up to 20 degrees, so it's quite nice for swimming. Once you go below that layer, it can drop down to 12, 13, 14 degrees. So when you get an upwelling in the lake, you can swim along and think this is beautiful, it's 20 degrees, and all of a sudden you get hit by a tsunami of cold, which takes your breath away. So great outdoor activity. Skiing in the winter, we've got two fantastic ski fields within 40 minutes drive from where we live, Treble Cone, which is a black and blue run mountain that is extremely testing for all skiers. And then a 
slightly more accommodating field called Cardrona, which is more than a family field, but it's very well suited for families, which is equidistance away from where we live, as is Triple Cone. If you're active and you like the outdoors, this is a wonderful place to live. You are on the trail less traveled, and if you just tuned in, I'm interviewing my friends Richard and Di in their home here in Wanaka. Now it's time for a song. So I'd like to ask you to share a song with us that reminds you of your early childhood. My mother was a professional musician. She was an accompanist and a teacher in piano. So when we traveled, the road trips were long. They'd, They'd go for days, particularly from Palmerston North to Wanaka. There was a lot of singing. And there's really two that hold in my memory. One was a round called Frere Jaca, Frere Jaca Dormez-vous, that we used to sing because it was endless. It would just go on and on and on. And the other stirring song that we used to sing a lot was What Shall We Do With the Drunken Sailor? Early in the Morning. And they, again, had lots of verses and lots of variations and a lot of opportunity to add your own verses into the song sheet. This podcast is brought to you by Karuna Clothing. Karuna Clothing is handcrafted from natural fabrics, which soften as they age. Currently with design workshops in Missoula, Montana, and Mendocino County, California. All of their clothing is sewn and dyed in the United States. Karuna Clothing is sewn with love and laughter, and designed simply with the use of the best fabrics. They create their own unique colors, creating small batch product lines, which are simply beautiful. Karuna clothing is the first thing I toss into my suitcase when recording on location for the trail less traveled. You can find out more by visiting karunaclothing.com. That's K-A-R-U-N-A clothing.com. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled. This evening, the Trail Less Traveled leads to Lake Wanaka, which is on New Zealand's central South Island. Lake Wanaka is in Otago. This evening, I'm joining my two friends, Richard and Di, who went down the Grand Canyon with me last year, and I'm reconnecting with them here in New Zealand. And I'm talking to them about... I'm going to do it. I'm going to throw the word in there. Fundicating... (laughs) Uh, grapes, olives, mussels, veggies, sheep, and honey. If you don't know what that word means, please look it up. My new favorite word, besides meaning to procreate, it means to be fruitful, fundicate. So now I'd like to talk to you guys about grapes. And in my right hand, I'm swirling a really nice Pinot Noir. It's from your label, which is two degrees, and this farm is just down the road from you. I'd love to just learn about winemaking and the process that you guys go through. We are just talking about the fertile soil that these grapes are coming from, the remnants left behind from a glacier. So I'll just hand it over to you guys, and I'm just really curious to learn about the whole process of fundicating grapes and making a lovely wine from it. I love them. <laughs> this is a new word. It's got me in giggles. <laughs> it's really good. First of all, we planted in 2003 
Richard, in his wisdom, decided that was a good thing to do. And it was done while we were still living in Australia at the time in Sydney. And one of the reasons he did it was to demonstrate on the farm that certain things could be grown successfully. And so when I came back to New Zealand with him, I was rather startled to find that our vineyard, which I had envisaged being about one acre, was actually six hectares, which in your language in the States equates to 15 acres of grapes. So it's quite significant. We did that to not only do the demonstration effect of what the land is capable of doing around the farm, but also to give us a reason for retiring back in Wanaka, because we were living in Sydney for 10 or so years, and we were always in the back of our mind looking for a reason to get back to New Zealand, where our hearts lay, and to our beloved area of central Otago. So the grapes were an entree back home, and... We had a big learning curve. We knew nothing, really. We had a guy who knew a lot about grapes at the time, Robin Dicey. He had his own vineyard here already, and he planted for us and looked after our grapes. So we were very green, and so were the grapes the first year we picked them. Our first harvest was in 2007, and we probably didn't let them ripen enough. And the, the wine was okay. It's still drinkable. We've still got the odd... Well, someone opened a bottle of 2007 recently, and actually it was okay. But retrospectively, we can look at it and say, quite honestly, our first vintage was not our best. Part of that reason was because we just wanted to pick every grape off the vine. And, in fact... You need to leave quite a few of the ones that aren't ripe on the vine and they should never be touched. But as an owner, you just want to pick everything. <laughs> so that was our first big learning curve. Yeah, the process, well, draft, it's absolutely ongoing, isn't it? Once you're in the cycle, you've got to do the same thing every year, year in, year out. We've just harvested our 2017 vintage. We finished last week. So the vines at the present time are looking quite bare. There's very few leaves left on them. The leaves have turned orange and red and they've all fallen off onto the ground. We've picked all the grapes. The grapes are now at the winery. They've been crushed with stems and stalks and skins and all included. Some put into these massive, great, white plastic bins. So it's a very unromantic process, the actual making of the wine. And they stay in these big fermenting tanks for about six weeks, and they're hand-plunged every week. The grapes, the skins and the stalks come to the surface of the liquid and then form a big crust. And every week that crust has to be broken. And we do everything by hand. They do it in the winery. We do everything by hand in the vineyard. There's no machine picking or plucking or anything like that. It's all manual labour. So they're busy breaking the crust at the moment. And then in six weeks' time, when the fermentation is properly started with natural yeast, 
in the winery, they will put the wine into barrels and we use about a 40% split of new oak barrels from France and then the 60% are year, one year old and two year old barrels. So they go into the barrels and they stay there for about nine months at which time we bottle. So that's the kind of process that we're at at the moment. We're at the beginning of that, the grapes are off the vines, they're fermenting and they will be in the barrel until March of next year when we will bottle the 2017 vintage. Draft, do you want to talk about the actual what goes on in the vineyard rather than the winery with all the processes that have gone through, like starting maybe with the pruning that we... The essence of the wine and the characteristics of the wine is really driven by the land and the land is glaciated so it's not particularly fertile. It's windblown lowest as Di described there's gravels underneath, so the plant has to work quite hard to get itself established, firstly, and secondly, to survive. So the French call it the terroir, the fruit that's grown from plants on that landscape is very much a reflection of what lies beneath. And so it's a struggle. The plants don't have it easy. They're low-yielding. This year we've grown five tonnes of fruit per hectare, which is the equivalent of two tonnes per acre. Uh, so very low yielding, very intense flavours, small berries, intense flavours. We keep the fruit on the vine quite late in the season here because we have a canopy that tends to hold up. So the frost drifts down from the Pisa down to the mighty Clutha River in front of the vineyard and keeps moving and doesn't get much of an opportunity to stop and burn the leaf structure off. So the result of that is that the leaf structure continues to photosynthesize and keeps the maturation process going for longer than many other areas in central Otago. And hence the name two degrees, you know, the key to the characteristics of the fruit as well as the soil, the flinty, rather barren, gravelly soil, is the fact that the air keeps flowing. And two degrees of slope from the bottom of the Pisa Range where the vineyard sits to the river holds the key to delivering that characteristic. So it's a unique site and it produces, we think, a very special wine as a result. Beautiful. You're on the trail less traveled being recorded today in central Otago. It's in the central area of the South Island of New Zealand. And I'm speaking with Richard and Di, who are farmers, and they love growing things, particularly grapes, olives, mussels, veggies, sheep, and honey. And I'd like to ask you guys about some of the different wines that New Zealand's known for. And are you guys focusing on Pinot Noir? That's what we're drinking right now. Are you making any other types of wines? We decided we'd just stick with Pinot Noir because we know that's what Central Otago is best known for and grows best. So we only do Pinot. Central Otago is starting to grow some quite nice Rieslings, Chardonnays, but mm, we still think Pinot Noir is the best from Central. 
in terms of what else has grown in New Zealand, in the Marlborough region, we're famous for Sauvignon Blanc, which is world-renowned. It's been a huge earner for New Zealand. They grow a lot of it up there, and they produce it very, very well. So that's a worldwide phenomenon. I'm sure people in the United States will know of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Probably a label like Cloudy Bay has gone everywhere in the world over the last 10 years. In the warmer climes of the North Island, they grow some very nice Shiraz. And on Waiheke Island off Auckland, they're producing some very nice Cabernet Sauvignons. But overall, the most grown wine is Sauvignon Blanc and probably followed by Pinot Noir from Central Otago, North Canterbury, the Wairarapa in the North Island and the Hawke's Bay gets into the heavier reds because of the warmer climate. Di, I'd like to ask you now about what it's like to drink the wine that you are helping birth. I can't imagine what it must be like to have been with these grapes for so long and to see the changes from your first vintage to what you're now producing and just what it's like the vibe of drinking your own harvest. Thanks, Mandela. We love it. We're very proud of it. We think every vintage drinks beautifully. We love sharing it with our friends, and that's something that's really, really nice about the wine industry. You meet a lot of beautiful people who have the same passion for the same sort of product, and you exchange ideas, and you exchange tastes, and it's very convivial. It's a joy. You work hard all year to produce this wine. It's an exciting time when you get the harvest in, which only happened last week. So it's kind of, you know, you feel very satisfied that a job well done. And then you get to taste the wine and you think, wow, this is fantastic. It's all worthwhile. So, yeah, it's very special to be able to drink your own product and know that you've put a lot into producing the end result. Yeah, it's great. You're on the trail less traveled. Outdoor adventure with Mandela on the trail 103.3. It's time now for a song. So Di, I think it's your turn to choose a song. Is there a song that reminds you of your life's adventures? You've traveled extensively throughout this world. We've been speaking about wine most recently, but any song that comes to mind that inspires you and reminds you of your life's adventures. Funnily enough, I've been thinking about this for a while, and just now it occurred to me that when I was in London, I went to see a Rod Stewart concert at Wembley Stadium, and we'd just recently got married, Richard and I, and he'd gone off to Saudi Arabia 10 days after we got married to earn some money and I didn't want to go to Saudi Arabia because well because I was a woman (laughs) say no more (laughs) so I stayed behind in London and went to this concert with some friends Rod Stewart and he was singing sailing away (laughs) sailing away and goes on and we've many a time we partied singing the song at the tops of our voices because it's very singable. And I don't even particularly like Rod Stewart, but that song resonates with me for a time when I was in London in the 19, late 
70s, I guess it was, yeah, 78, 79. So it must have been 79, actually, because we just got married, yeah. So sailing away, Rod Stewart. It's the trail as travelled with Mandela. This evening, the trail as travelled leads to Lake Wanaka, which is in the central South Island of New Zealand. And I'm here at the home of my friends Richard and Di, who I was able to go down the Grand Canyon with last year, and I'm reconnecting with them here in New Zealand. And they are growers of grapes, olives, mussels, veggies, sheep, and honey to name a few. And just earlier we were talking about grapes and their label for their Pinot Noir, which is two degrees. And it's a lovely wine that we've been sipping as we record this interview. Now I'd like to talk about sheep, particularly merino wool. So Richard, can you tell us a little bit about this fascinating creature and the natural clothing that it produces? The origin of merino is from the southern Pyrenees, you know, Spain. It is a sheep, but it has characteristics of a goat. It's quite a unattractive-looking animal. Yeah, not, not the best-looking sheep in the world, but it's renowned for producing beautiful fibre, very fine fibre. And we were attracted to the farming business here in central Otago in the early 90s where we were lucky enough to acquire a farm that was a merino farm and we spent 20 odd years working towards producing yet finer wool from the flock. The great thing about the wool, the finer the wool is the more elastic it is and the really fine wool that we produce ends up in suiting material So if you're sitting in a meeting all day in a woolen suit and you stand up, normally you'd expect the knees and the backside to look as though they've been sat in all day. Really good fine wool will spring back to its original form. So a very highly sought after fibre for fashion, for high fashion, but increasingly becoming an attractive fibre for outdoor pursuits so the use of merino has extended in recent times to what's called base wear so you have a very fine layer a very thin layer actually that's next to your skin and because of its fine nature the wool doesn't irritate your skin whereas if it's a very coarse wool you tend to be scratching and itching all the time this wool is very comfortable against the skin And it also has the added characteristic of not retaining smell. So with a synthetic base layer, you wear it for a day and you're a day in the mountains hiking or mountain biking and you take it off and it actually harbors bacteria. The bacteria reside quite comfortably in polypropylene, but less so in natural wool. And so you don't get that woofy, smelly BO flavour coming out of wool in the same way that you do with with polypropylene. In fact, you can wear it for days, actively for days, and it still smells like it's just come out of the laundry. So it's comfortable, beautiful to wear, and it 
doesn't have you smelling like uh, somebody that hasn't bathed for a couple of weeks. So it's very nice fibre and it grows really well here. The merino sheep likes hill country, likes quite hard country and its feet are very, very conditioned to being worn. So if you grow and rear your merinos on soft, wet country, they have a tendency to suffer from foot rot. So they hobble and they don't look very comfortable. In fact, they become quite lame on wet country, but up in the hill country where they're running around the rocks and browsing on a bit of tussock here and there, they're fit they're healthy looking animals and they grow this beautiful fibre. So it's a very romantic idea of having an animal that's living in country that's more akin to subsistence where they produce this very nice fibre. And the other key to producing really good merino wool is having a consistent diameter in the fibre. So if the diet is reasonably consistent and they're not suffering from starvation, it will produce a nice, consistent diameter. So when the wool's spun, the wool stays together, it doesn't break. And Central Otago wool particularly is known for its consistency in diameter. So that's really the story of Merino. It's difficult wool to grow. It's quite expensive in terms of the animal health issues surrounding the maintenance of the sheep. And like all agricultural products, it's subject to the commodity cycle and to currency. So it's not for the faint-hearted, but it is a, it's a really satisfying fibre to grow. And it's a wonderful thing to wear. We all wear it around here. We've got... You can wear it, and it has also that wonderful ability when you're in the morning, like this morning where it's frosty, I've got three layers on. And during the day, you just take a layer off. And sometimes you don't have to do that either because the wool seems to adapt to what's going on outside. So when it's really cold, it keeps you warm. When it's warm, it keeps you cool. It's got some very strong redeeming characteristics which make it a wonderful fibre to wear. You've been on the trail less traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration. This evening, the trail has led to central Otago, which is in the central region of New Zealand, South Island, and I've been interviewing my two friends, Richard and Di, about their love for growing grapes, olives, mussels, veggies, sheep, and honey. We are recording this interview about 150 meters from Lake Wanaka, surrounded by mountains, and I wanted to thank you both for your time and energy to meet me here on the trail less traveled. It's been great catching up again. It's like we're almost back on the Colorado, but we're not surrounded by these enormous cliffs and colors, red colors. We're in a very different landscape. We call it the big sky here, actually, because you look out and you see a lot of sky. You see mountains, but you see sky. And at night, because there's very little light flaring here, the galaxies are very apparent too. You know, the Southern Cross stands out. There's no Northern Star, but the lack of cloud and the clarity of the stars, I mean, it's extraordinary. The Milky Way, it's a very, very bright sky. So it's a, it's a marked contrast to, uh, to the Colorado. Mandela, great to catch up with you again. You're a special person. 
We loved our trip with you down the Colorado and we are loving catching up with you again here in New Zealand. Come back. Thank you both. I'd like to end this show now with three bits of advice that you'd like to share with the listener. So I'd love for you to each share three bits of advice and we'll just go back and forth between you two. I think it's really important in life to grab it and go with it. And life deals you up a lot of good and a lot of bad. And you've just got to be prepared to deal with whatever it casts at you at any one time. So never be daunted. Always be positive. My adage has always been a very simple one of treat every day as if it's your last, but treat your family and friends as if you live forever. So very much along Di's lines of if there's an opportunity to do something, don't contemplate too much. Just go and do it. Just go do it and enjoy the moment. And don't be hesitant about it. Just absolutely go for it. Because, as Di says, you know, your days can be short. You hope they're going to be long. So you want to be in a position where you never have any regrets. So don't hold back. Yeah, just just sing. Just sing and enjoy life. It's very precious. Enjoy your friends and go for it. Yeah, it's a bit repetitive, but that's where we're at. I come from a business background. The business parallels, which I often talk about whether it's funds management or investment banking or farming the consistent themes that I have as a mantra with the people that I work with are work as a team you know the benefits of working together as a team are phenomenal no one has a mortgage on all the ideas it's amazing the strength that you can get by collaboration with others, sitting down, discussing, debating, talking, and thinking about alternative solutions. So teamsmanship is absolutely paramount. That's number one. Number two, having a decision-making process which thinks long-term. So there's no short-term fix. People often grab an immediate solution and say, whew, I've put that to bed and it's probably through experience, my view on all of that is you may get lucky, but actually taking a long, consistent view and setting some targets and working towards that is really important. So no short-term fixes. The third one is just doing the right thing. Having a code which is not influenced by external factors saying we've got a standard we set here, you know, we're thinking about other people that are involved in this decision, let's be very careful that the decision we make is fair to all and doesn't have any adverse consequences subsequent. It's a bit like a moral code, but actually it's something that applies to all facets of life that I think is really important. Believe in yourself, believe in your friends, believe in what you seriously contemplate about life and go forward with no regrets, as Draft has already said. It sounds terribly serious, I think, this conversation we're having. But in fact, 
we're not that serious people, really. We're quite light, but we've got to some kind of serious level. And it's all been a bit of an adventure for us tonight to be able to talk about it. So thanks, Mandela. Thank you, guys. Now, what song would you like to end this show with? My favourite song of all time, based on melody, the lyrics particularly, and the outstanding riffs, is Frank Zappa's Yellow Snow. Don't go where the huskies go. Don't go where there's that yellow snow. Namaste, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. You can subscribe to the free iTunes podcast and visit traillesstraveled.net to see pictures, archive previous episodes, and contact me. I'd like to thank my guests for this week, Die and Draft Somerville. Die and Draft are native South Islanders with a passion for cultivating grapes, olives, wool, mussels, honey, and vegetables. Under their wine label, Two Degrees, they turn their grapes into a beautiful Pinot Noir. And on the sheep side of things, much of their merino wool is sold to Icebreaker, thus turned into the traditional Kiwi lightweight layering system. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural environment. Tonight's episode was recorded in central Otago, which is located in the central region of New Zealand's South Island. And right now, I'm editing and producing the show on the Cook Strait Ferry. So I'm literally making the passage right now from the South Island up to the North Island. And as I produce the show, my computer is slowly but surely sliding back and forth across the table as the boat navigates the ever-changing swell of this gnarly section of water between New Zealand's North and South Island. It's the Trail Less Traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration, Sunday nights at 6, Tuesday nights at 10. My adventure tip this week concerns thermals and the layering system when going out on a mission. I've always been a huge fan of merino wool, but from my time in New Zealand, I can say that it is the perfect material for layering due to its ability to keep sheep musters warm on cold, wet mornings, and the same layer can keep the body cool in the afternoon sun. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world, but until next week's adventure, I trust that you will get outside and shred the gnar. Because as I'm sure you know, the gnar simply does not shred itself.